0: Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Samson Rope. Your rigging ropes aren't just tools of the trade. They do the grunt work. They have to endure dynamic loads, abrasion, and moving through hardware while keeping you safe, which is why Samson rigging ropes are specifically designed and engineered to meet the rigors of your job, the result of a legacy of over 140 years of innovation. Stable braid rigging line is the industry standard for arborists. A durable polyester, double braid rope with a high strength-to-weight ratio Torque-free construction with UV protection. Put stable braid to work for you. Stable braid from Samson, the strongest name in rope. Visit samsonrope.com for more information.
1: This episode of the TCIA podcast is brought to you by Tree Diaper. Did you know that the normal one-year warranty on a new tree has nothing to do with tree establishment or that newly transplanted trees need two to five years of maintenance before establishment? It's because trees often lose the majority of their roots during the establishment process for a variety of reasons, including the expense of irrigation and the time of manual watering. Tree Diaper is a patented multifunctional plant protection system that absorbs rain or irrigation water before slowly releasing it back when soil dries. When used properly, it promotes healthy outward root growth that facilitates establishment and establishes the long-term health of the tree. By reducing watering need, it significantly reduces the labor and water costs while increasing the survival rate of newly transplanted trees. To learn more about how Tree Diaper can help your company get ahead of proper planting maintenance for your customers and help you save time and money, visit treediaper.com.
2: I'm Chucky Anderson. I'm a staff arborist at the Tree Care Industry Association and I am looking forward to our special guest on our podcast today.
3: Hi, my name is Matthew Meckley. Uh, I'm a tree climber and a, I guess a hazard faller and I'm excited to kind of reach out to new people that want to get into arboriculture or forestry and also want to find other ways to advance their career.
2: So Matthew, uh, very excited to have you again. Uh, Could you just maybe describe for, for everyone who's listening a little bit about what you do for a living? Kind of give yourself a title and a description of what you do.
3: I guess I can consider myself a hazard tree follower and tree climber. I've been the last three years kind of working on all the fire scars from all the previous burns. And that's what I've been doing. It's kind of been a traveling job. So I've been living all over Northern California. And then had a home in Nevada City. Now I just moved up to Oregon this January, and I'm working on a few of the fire projects that are currently going on up here.
2: Are you mostly working in fire in fuels reduction, or is it? um, Are you also in arboriculture as well?
3: I also do a lot of arboriculture as well. You know, from fine pruning a Japanese maple to crown reducing an oak, and now I'm out there. Mitigating and trying to get down hazard burnt trees that could affect utility lines, roadways, or even going out in the fire and helping the firefighters cut down trees.
2: So that seems to be a pretty big issue out West that um, uh, fuels reduction, uh, removing hazardous trees, going through in post-burn scenarios and, and falling burned trees. Uh, could you describe a little bit more of maybe what your average week is like with that type of work?
3: Yeah, so um, if you're down the utility side, a lot of times your average week is going hiking in really crazy places, and uh, you know you got to carry your fire tools. You got you pretty much are just like a little mountain goat, and you're hiking to get to these trees that you got to trim or cut down. And then you know there's also uh, the work that we're doing now. I'm I'm leaving at 4:30 in the morning to drive two hours to get to work, and then yeah, it's a it's a beautiful drive, but yeah, <laughs> just working big burnt trees on the roadway and going for hikes all day 10 hour days and it's hard work but it's a it's an adventure and it's uh if you're if you're meant for it it's pretty good
2: you make it sound fun and awful at the same time
3: <laughs> yeah well it can be fun and awful you know uh, you got to be made for it kind of or you you can train yourself for it but you got to just like like hard work you know it's it's not just oh you got to climb or get to it you, know, you got to hike there got to plan it out and yeah it's, it's uh it's interesting
2: are you are you in charge of the planning of the projects or is that does somebody else give you a, a list of things to do and you you carry those out
3: yeah so I've been running a, a pretty good side of this like a supervisor role under like big foremans but yeah i have been running uh we get there's two branches and two sides that we're currently working and uh yeah I'm in charge of the one side so yeah I'm, I'm running two Cinnaboggans and like a few followers and then we got tons of traffic control There's a bunch of entities at play so it's not just me going out to cut I gotta help line everyone out as well.
2: Wow you're a supervisor that's pretty cool well how did you how did you start in this industry to get to where you are today?
3: Oh man uh so my dad. I'm, I guess I'd second generation my dad worked at a company in uh, northwest illinois and i needed money and a kind of like a, a microburst to glen ellen illinois and they needed help doing cleanup so i was behind the grapple truck as a groundman and did that for a couple months and then uh, yeah i saw a climber and i was like man i want to do that and they kept me around and then I worked on climbing crews and I had some good foremen that would, you know, they saw that I I really wanted to do it, pursue it. So they invested their time in me. So, and that's basically been it. And I've just been hungry for more advancement.
2: That's great. Is that, is that kind of like your key to success? Why maybe you rose through the ranks and others didn't that you showed a passion and excitement for it, or you were willing to cooperate? What, what was your edge over other people who might have have been passed over.
3: Uh yeah, probably, you know, um, hungry for advancement and i just giving 110%, you know, like from dragon branches to whatever, you know, I just I owned it and made sure that uh I could be good at it.
2: That's good. That's that seems like uh, the recipe for success for a lot of different industries, probably most industries, but it sounds yeah. like you you acquired that naturally. It seems like being second generation
3: Yeah, definitely. You know, my my parents were really, I had great parents, you know, so I watched my mom and dad work really hard. So I just, I think I just learned it from that.
2: So from the field up then, you never really had to go to school for any of this?
3: No, I I, I did some ISA classes and all that, but no, um, I never really thought of going to school for it. You know, I was actually a hairdresser before I did all of this, so yeah. <laughs> That's
2: a big left
3: turn. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
2: So you, you don't go home with helmet hair then, do you? You you've styled it up in the truck and you Well
3: I, I I kind of uh yeah, I don't I I should keep a clean head. I don't I don't have any hair, I don't have to worry about it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> keep the knits down, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, so you're based in Oregon now, which is beautiful country, and you talked a little bit about um you know how, how difficult it is out in the backwoods, you have to hike in. Just out of curiosity, I'm on this. I've got this footwear uh, interest going on lately. I don't know. It's not a foot fetish. No, don't even say that. But uh, I'm just wondering what what kind of boots do you choose for those rough mountainside um, treks? And I know that those are really steep areas that you're clambering yes. over. What's what's your footwear of choice these days?
3: So they have a. It's like an old logger. There's there's boots they call them. They call them corks.
2: uh, they got
3: little spikes on the bottom of them so that's the boot of choice i mean you do run into some shaley parts and you kind of go through your corks but when you're going up there you can see some down timber and that's the easiest if you can climb on top of it and then just run up the hill it's like a sidewalk up to the top of the mountain so and the corks help you not slip off from the bark and all that but yeah the corks are the best for digging into the, the the wet ground and whatnot
2: When do you change those out? Do you have like a pair of tennis shoes in your backpack or something just before you get into the truck on concrete? When do you switch those out? Yeah,
3: yeah, I I have my driving boots, which I'd go to my morning meeting in and they're just basically slip on boots. I try not to wear them on the asphalt, but we've had to park and then put our boots on and then walk a little bit on the road to get up to where we're going. So
2: It's the same thing as walking around and climbing spikes, right? You can't really know what, what ground you're on.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: So if you if you do fire a little bit out there, I'm ge- I'm going to guess that maybe when when you're just falling trees that you're in and out in one day, uh, whereas on on fire, are you out there overnight? Are you camping overnight on the fire lines?
3: Yeah. So uh, this was my first year. Last year was my first year uh, going out as a timber faller on fires, and uh, there was a point in time where me and my best friend we got told to they call it a spike out. And so we were at a place called Mono Hot Springs, and they had us camp out for a week and a half on the fire line. It was like ten thousand foot elevation, and we still had our summer gear with us, nothing warm so yeah we had to we had to kind of split down to one tent and share a tent to stay warm at night. but yeah, it was a cool experience uh you know, we watched the fire progress, we would actually go help out and try to help with some of the firing operations to help backburn some stuff. So it was more than just falling on that little uh, mission.
2: That was fun. I remember doing that. I, was a, um, um, I have a, a degree in forestry as well. And, and I remember in the summers, spending time out in the woods, doing what you're doing, falling timber and uh, working on the fire lines. One thing about my fire training that uh, really bothered me, maybe you can help me sort this out or maybe they've progressed past this, uh, back in the day, it was like 20 years ago when I did my fire training, and they were class. They were they were testing us uh, for for falling classifications, uh, an A faller, B faller, C faller, and these are designated by the size of tree, the tree diameter that yes. you're qualified to cut. So we we got our A qualification, and then we went to get our B qualification, which means that you can cut trees up to I'm guessing 34 inches in diameter. I'm just, I can't quite remember, but these trees are over hundred feet tall. You know, we're out in in Oregon. I was out there with you. Well, where you are now too. But one thing that bothered me is we got one opportunity to cut down a 34 inch diameter tree. And then we were classified as bee fallers. In my mind, I'm like, I am in no way qualified to cut this size tree down. So I'm kind of hoping (laughs) that maybe those um, qualifications have changed and that that you have to have a certain number of months of experience around that size tree. What is, what is your opinion on, on what they they were doing 20 years ago?
3: So I think they've kind of, um, I think they do put more time into the training from the guys I've talked to. So it's not just, you get one chance. I think they do work up to it. You got to have a task book to help show that and show kind of what scenarios and what situations you've done and, or uh you know became a champion out of it so and there's that and then from what i see they don't really let the guys do much falling work anymore they kind of you know you're brought in as a contracted timber faller and you're basically the one to to handle they were calling them big heavies so you were the one to do the bigger trees yeah, we saw a few guys cut, but yeah, they, they would mainly stick the big work to the contracted tender fallers.
2: Is that, is that your classification now? Are you a big faller, or are you? Uh, yeah, what's
3: you? I guess. Yeah. I, I have a, a task book and I think it's now a type one faller, so I can do all the, the big stuff, but yeah, I didn't get questioned or anything. So
2: that's good to know. That that gives me some peace of mind now because it was it was dangerous before. And then, when, again, when I went through and they gave me one time, one chance to fall a 34-inch diameter tree, and then suddenly I'm qualified, boy, don't put me on that next tree. Yeah, right. <laughs> so speaking of training, you are, so you're a supervisor with your crews, and are you doing any contract training elsewhere? Do you move around the country and,
3: I wouldn't say I'm a contractor. I work for a company called the Academy. It's the Academy trained and it's, a it's owned by Jared Abergina and Phil Ragaki. And, uh, it's basically their little, their little training. That's kind of was helped with by Atlas tree out down in Santa Rosa. So they have a little, they have a, um, a cool facility down there with an indoor training, um, you know, to show spar pole, how to aerial rescue. And then they got trees in the back there that, you know, they they do skills assessments and try to help people learn how to basically move around a tree. And then they have anywhere from courses from becoming a groundsman, starting from there to all the way to becoming an advanced faller or an advanced climber. And it's still kind of in the beginning processes because it started about the end of 2019. And then 2020 Corona, so we—that's uh, when I came on—is right before coronavirus. And then, kind of, I did one training, and then the trainings had to stop. So now this, hopefully, this year, because things are starting to get better, and we're coming up with more ways to to get past all the Corona virus stuff. So it's gonna it's gonna get pretty big here soon, and I think there's some big plans coming up. And they also have a podcast as well. They got a multimedia room where they're going to start having podcasts with some of the greats and people that, uh, you know, really can reach out to people to help with techniques and experiences, you know? So I'm, I'm excited. That
2: sounds like a great facility that, uh, you've been involved in. And again, too bad bad that you got, uh, you know, you got Corona the first year, but it does sound like, you know, as things loosen up that you'll be able to get back on track. So what, what kinds of things are you going to be training out there? You specifically, are you going to be working with doing everything?
3: Yeah, basically, I, I talked with Jared. I was going to do a lot of uh, crane work, crane rigging, uh, technical tree rigging, and uh, falling work. I was going to help with those kind of, those are like my three strong, my, I guess my strong uh, fields. So that that's where I really wanted to help people out.
2: That's very exciting. We're definitely going to keep an eye on the academy and uh, uh, watch you work your way through a bunch of new trainees <laughs> and see see the talent that you'll turn out of that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So now, where is the academy? They're they're in California.
3: Yeah, it's in Santa Rosa.
2: Santa Rosa. Yeah. Okay. So now and then, now you're in Oregon. Are you content with uh, living in Oregon, or would you?
3: Move back to
2: California to be with the Academy, or are you finding that plane travel is just too convenient and you can live anywhere and work anywhere?
3: Well, I mean, I'm fine with the current plane travel. We definitely talked about that this year, but um, no, I I, uh, the little town I lived in in California, I fell in love with. And uh, my girlfriend and I were very sad to leave there. So we plan on getting back there once this contract's over.
2: Good, good. It's always good to work or to like where you're working part of a good job so so it sounds like you get some optimism for for the future for the near future which is very exciting what is what's in your five-year plan Matthew
3: um five-year plan um you know I always wanted to be always uh quote unquote not quote unquote but I always want to be in the thick of all the stuff you know and I still find myself wanting to work hard and, you know, kind of maybe taking a little bit more leadership roles, but I still want to be out there doing all the hard work and all that. So more so, I guess, being a leader than a supervisor.
2: So in about five years, we can look through leadership magazine, if there is such a thing, and yeah. we'll find a picture on the cover. And, maybe, uh... maybe,
3: I just, you know, there's that mentality <laughs> of the boss and the leader, you know, I don't, you know, the boss sits in his truck and doesn't get out and tells you what to do and the, the, kind of the leader he goes out there and he'll do the stuff that you don't want to do just to help you out and you know show that what can be done and whatnot at least that's my my take on being a leader
2: i think that's a, a very good way to look at the two different or the, the, the position with the two different descriptions so i'm yeah. glad that you're choosing more of the leadership route and less the sit behind the steering wheel and yeah. thumb through your phone route
3: yeah <laughs> in, in five years i'll only I'll only be thirty-five, so I'm sure I will still be pretty fit to keep doing all the hard stuff. Oh,
2: I'm sure, I'm sure. So we've looked ahead a little bit. So can you tell me, in the past, over the course of your career, you have one fantastic moment that that stood out, or maybe I, you know, maybe even uh, well, not a horrific moment, but a memorable moment. Is there, what 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 was the, the defining moment of your, mm. your career so far?
3: well i guess there's a bunch I just, i've done a lot of cool things in this uh career this is another reason why i want to help give back uh i don't know i've worked in new zealand i've lived there done some of the coolest uh projects there like i got put on a lot of special projects while i was there so it was cool and then i went to australia worked with uh, ace tree services and got at some of the biggest eucalyptuses out there uh and then i worked in the Bay Area of California with uh, Grant Hamilton with my best friend and uh, got to do some of the biggest eucalyptuses there as well. Like, uh, there's not one there's not one thing I can pinpoint that's... It, it, my whole career so far has been a great experience and something that's memorable, you know?
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. Good for you. Nuke yeah. <laughs> man, good for you. <laughs>
3: uh,
2: well, so, you know... Looking back, looking forward, if you had to do it all over again, what would you change?
3: I probably would say I would have started a bit younger, and I probably, or I might have, um, maybe looked at getting a forestry degree or something like that. But there's not much I would change, you know, because when I was gotten to high school, I didn't care about anything. I I didn't know what was going on. I was kind of a lazy kid. I I I had good grades, but I didn't apply myself, so I didn't really learn how to. I call it being an adult, but learning how to apply myself until I was like maybe twenty, maybe twenty-one. So I maybe if I would have gotten to it younger, I would have gotten burnt out and uh, not appreciated it or worked harder, worked as hard.
2: I think I think we put too many expectations on kids in high school. You know, asking them what what school what what college they're going to. You know, they're still developing, and so putting such pressure, you know, futuristic pressure on high school students is uh, unrealistic in my mind, if you ask me. So I'm kind of glad that you didn't, you weren't forced into making any decisions about mm. your career or anything when you were in high school. It sounded like you were just yeah. still having, having a good high school fun time.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to ride my bike and kind of travel from that. So, yeah, that's all I was worried about.
0: <laughs> this episode of the TCIA Podcast is brought to you by the brand new TCI Magazine website the digital supplement to the most widely read periodical in the tree care industry. No matter where you are in the world, you can have top-notch content, timely industry updates, and cutting edge advertisers you have come to expect from TCI Magazine for the past 30 years, all in the palm of your hand. The fully responsive TCI Magazine website breaks down years of content into neatly organized categories specific to certain aspects of tree care businesses, making it easier than ever to navigate and find articles on exactly what you're looking for. You can discuss articles in real time through the new commenting feature, as well as share articles with friends, family, and colleagues through the vastly improved social sharing. We've also been listening to you, our readers, over the years, and to make this content more accessible than ever, we've included article translations for nine different languages. So if English isn't your primary language, you can still enjoy the experience of reading TCI Magazine. So head over to tcimag.tcia.org to check out the brand new TCI Magazine website the official website of the most widely read periodical in the tree care industry. That's T-C-I-M-A-G dot So, cause we touched base already
4: on what it's like to be a student trying to make decisions and kind of what the general interest level is of what you're doing right now, Matthew, mm-hmm. um, how, how do you think, you know, either schools or, you know, tree care companies or the tree care industry can better start uh, approaching potential students or even people who are potentially interested in being part of the industry. Because I think what you had kind of mentioned as, you know, waking up, going on beautiful hikes, camping out, I think there are a lot of outdoorsy people who see themselves more as like weekend warriors or something like that, rather than making this an actual career and I don't yeah. know what kind of advice you had for people looking to take it from the weekend warrior to kind of the full-time job. Yeah.
3: I don't know. I feel like there should be programs or something. I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that more, but I I, I did try to go talking at my local high school about, you know, about aboriginal culture and all that, you know, I've tried to take it upon myself to get that done, but somehow it didn't work out. But I think, I mean, I don't know how the TCI could do that. I'm not too sure, but I feel like some people in their communities, if they, they can do that, I feel like that would be the best way, you know, going to schools or, 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 you know, having talking to certain schools and tech schools or whatever, to try to get them interested in it, you know, reach out to a few schools and then you could send someone to go do that. I'm not, I'm not sure. That's a, that's a good question.
4: What, I mean, because a lot of people end up falling into the tree care industry. It doesn't, it's usually not first on people's radars. Like what would have convinced you to, uh, to join the industry in high school? You know, you said that you were going to be uh, what's it called? A hairstylist, right? (laughs) Yeah. What, what would have made you try to swap from that, at an earlier point in time, what's something that somebody could have said or done? Uh, you know? I guess
3: the being outside every day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a hard one. I don't know. I don't know how. I guess I would, you know, because I, I didn't know then that I would be doing all of this stuff. You know, I just when I started tree work, I thought it was just you're you you work in a residential company and that's it. So. But yeah, um, I
4: don't know. That's a hard. These are hard questions. Well, it's not meant to you know interrogate you yeah. or that. It's just I'm just genuinely curious because a lot of people we've talked to from all walks of life as they've come on this show have kind of said they've kind of fallen into it. Even if they are second generation or third generation, a lot of them will go away and then come back to come back to it. So it just it seems like there's something there but it also seems like we're kind of missing that middle point of all right so high school question mark and then full-time career
0: yeah Hmm. it's it's john uh it's great talking to you first time popping in here but i was just flipping through your your instagram looking all these crazy videos and stuff and i is do you work with your girlfriend in the uh in the industry does she work with you yeah, my girlfriend, yeah, yeah, She, uh, she's
3: my, uh, she's second in charge with me and uh, she helps me run where I'm going and she's my cutting partner. So yeah, we work together. Every day.
0: That's pretty neat. So did you guys like meet in the industry? I mean, it's, it's, the industry is a very family centric, you know, all hands on deck type industry. Did you guys meet working together? Did you meet beforehand and then she got into it? Like how did that? We kind of talked on Instagram a
3: while before. He moved out to California, but um, yeah, she came and moved out and worked at uh, the same company that I had moved out to work at, and uh, yeah, we met there and worked together, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it from there, you know, we start working together and enjoying each other, and yeah, we just started dating, and now, yeah, I can't really see different because I ask, I use her for a lot of advice, and she keeps me level-headed, and she's really skilled, like, I can count on her to do anything. So,
0: yeah, it's funny you 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 flip through most people's Instagrams or whatever, and you see pictures of them at a a bar dressed all nice, and you guys you see you covered in ash holding huge chainsaws.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Our ideal of a of a a fun date is probably going on a hike to cut some big timber, and yeah, that's pretty much it.
2: (laughs) Matthew, is is she on your crew as well?
3: Yeah, she uh, she kind of has been floating around. helping out running crews but yeah now she's been working with on my side for the past couple of days and she's gonna and how, how many how
2: many people are on your crew how, how many people do you oversee uh,
3: i think we have over 20 but yeah we're, we're so kind of we yeah we handpicked everyone so it it was kind of a kind of a special deal we are because we, we're kind of doing a logging side to it as well so we're manufacturing the wood for for the mills and all that stuff so we need kind of some key players that will help with all of that
2: so you must be working with the forest service for like um you know the the plots and you know determining if it's clear cut or a a shelter cut or whatever so that's is that kind of what's going on
3: yeah we're doing roadway hazards so uh the forest service and odot kind of um i'm not too sure what's going on there but they, uh, yeah, they've, they've basically been working together and having us just cut roadway hazards at anything that could affect the road.
2: You oper- do you get to operate the Cineboggan?
3: <laughs> or is no, that someone else? No, no Caitlin, Caitlin has run the Cinnaboggan. She's, she's pretty good at it, but no, I, 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 I can run machines, but I don't <laughs> tell people that.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> keep your hands off of them, right? So yeah. you're more on the ground and then you've got a crew uh, doing the machinery cleanup and, and material handling?
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool.
4: Yeah, but when we talk about like the roads and you know clearing the hazards and stuff like that, what size roads are we referring to? Because when I think Oregon, I think tiny windy mountain roads.
3: Yeah, it's tiny mountain roads. Um, Yeah, it's all the stuff that's it's it's a road that takes you up to Mount Hood. So it's uh, I think it's Highway Two Two Four or whatever. So we're clearing that. And uh, yeah, it's it's it, it takes me an hour and a half to get to the job site. So I leave my house at like four thirty in the
4: morning. And by get to the job site, do you mean is that pre-hike like just you driving yeah, to where you park the truck? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pre-hike. So um, what I, we, we touch base on kind of the boots and stuff that you have to wear, but what other kind of equipment and stuff are you are you bringing with you as you go up on stuff like that? basically
3: I'm trying to stay light, but I wear a falling kit, you know, a wedge pouch, my axe holder. I got two MSR bottles, which are those, um, kind of aluminum can where you can put fuel in them. I hang those off my saddle, off my, my falling belt, and then just my saw and the end my axe and wedges. And that's about it.
2: <laughs> How many times have you left that, um, fuel reservoir open and discovered it as you started walking and it spills all over your back
3: <laughs> oh yeah a few times definitely the oil cap doesn't always tighten so i always find end up, borrow oil all over me
2: yeah I've, so many times it seems to be just like a common thing oh gosh got to change my whole outfit now it's soaked soaking gas <laughs> have you had any incidents not that we really want to focus on those but have you had any incidents um on the crew
3: recently while you were up there no, no, we've all been pretty safe. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean I have had prior incidents in my career, but yeah, no. And to be honest, uh I've I've been in a lot of sticky situations and uh, nothing with a bad outcome. No, no property damage, no no one hurt, nothing like that. So I, I'm gonna keep
0: that record. <laughs>
2: Good for you. Yeah. That sounds like you're doing all the all the things right, checking all the boxes
0: it so matthew you could do kind of i mean coming from someone with very little industry experience it seems like you do two very different things between you know working out in the mountains in oregon and then doing some training for the academy is it is it difficult to kind of bounce back and forth between those two similar yet very different professions mm, not really because
3: i would like to train out in the field which i do try to help guys with some experience, get them some experience, but I'm not hard. So I do, because how much the industry has given to me, I do try to give back. I and mean, I have that mindset when I go to the Academy to
0: work as hard as I can to help give back, you know, that's very, would you recommend people taking more diverse, you know, cause some people, I feel like get into the industry and they do one specific thing for a very long time. Would you, you know, encourage people to take a more diverse approach and do things like travel, travel to New Zealand to do contract work, and then
1: oh you know,
3: yeah, whatever. No, I, I would say definitely. You know, uh, I didn't know I could do that, and then I found Instagram, and I started, you know, kind of helping people's products. And a buddy down there, he asked me if hey, he wanted to come climb out and help my company? So, just just being able to use Instagram as a resume or you know showing form of the work you can perform is really critical I think because you guys know how kind of industry is a lot of guys are hot heads and they think they're hot shots you know and then they they can't do what they say so it, good visual representation to show that you know you are worth something and that you've worked hard to to get to where you want to go to so
2: building on that Matthew what kind of credentials do you feel are important for the type of work that you're doing?
3: So, um, you know, you can, you can become an ISAR. you know, that's a good one, especially residential. And also you can kind of look at trees and see, oh, well maybe, you know, this one, this one's got a fighting chance. We can leave it. So you can make that call to not cut a tree if they're clear cutting or, you know, they got it marked and you don't want to cut it. That's a good one for the projects. And, um, you know, what the CTSP that helps you kind of reach out to train people, if you want to go that route, you know it helps you, from my understanding the CTSP like helps you kind of understand how to reach out to people, right and kind of show leadership and all that, right?
2: yeah,'re you're, you're, you're really close to the CTSP program develops um, kind of a leadership protocol almost yeah. like a crew leader, but yeah, with an eye on safety and more so, how to communicate these uh, safety topics to adult learners it's yeah. the same kind of with the, the crew leader program but yeah ctsp is kind of like your like your first step in leadership and management
3: yeah no no another thing you know yeah i work for the academy but there's never been a kind of a training school like what they have to offer so they can take a green guy and kind of get him confident and able to help out on the crew more than just dragging brush within a week's time you know
2: And why is that important, do you think?
3: Because I feel like you get stuck in this spot because you have to, you know, you're the new guy on the crew. They make you pull branches for a long time and all that. And it kind of burns you out. You know, it's kind of like a hazing process or something like that. But I mean, it shows your worth. But if you start to develop those skills in the beginning and then you watch people on your crew and then if you get the opportunity to show, then you already have it in your bag and you can, you know, show your worth that way as well. You know, I don't know if that sounds right, but yeah. That's
2: just exactly what you did. It sounds like. Yeah. Climbing through the ranks.
3: Definitely. Yeah. Luckily uh, my foreman back then liked me because they didn't like a lot of people.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask a question, both of you, Matthew and you, Chucky, Um, going from being on the ground in doing the work and being involved with the physical work. How did you guys find the transition of going into a more educational role and kind of, I don't want to say hands off, but how do you start to develop the skills that you need to teach the stuff that you were good at before?
2: I'm going to jump in before you, Matthew. Sorry, I'm just turning yeah. question. This, I think we have two different approaches, not two different approaches, but we're in two different Segments of training. I came out of the out of the tree care field into an office job. And so whatever you envision an office job to be is kind of what it is. As a as a trainer, my expertise comes in creating the training materials that other trainers like maybe what Matthew is using. I, I help create the, you know, the, the written materials, the digital access materials. So I'm right now in. Training content construction, I guess, so to speak. So that's a little bit different from what Matthew's going to tell you right now, which is. Uh,
3: so I guess mine's different because I'm still in the field and I'm, I still use the techniques that I try to teach people, you know. And the differences for me is I'm still out in the field every day and I'm, and I'm trying and using the techniques and I'm seeing what works best. For each situation, and then I take that away and kind of try to break that down for people that want to learn and bring up those situations, if that makes sense.
2: There, there are actually different different kinds of training that we're seeing in the industry, which is really great. We see what Matthew and a lot of other trainers are doing in the field, hands-on, right next to the trainee, making a, visual assessments right there, and that is fantastic. And then we have other trainers. Similar to what I'm doing, that are uh, doing content and educational material uh, creation, as well as um, evaluations—not from afar, but so like a little bit separate than what Matt is doing. So it's you know the the training, the field of training itself is expanding into many different ways. The majority of trainers, though, I believe, are successful doing what Matthew is doing in the field a visual assessment right there. So um, that's, and there's plenty of opportunity for those types of trainers. We really need to see more of that, um, th- those hands-on trainers in the in the field, in the industry.
3: Yeah, and the, the, what uh, what we're doing, Atlas, Atlas is doing, they have a program called the STARS, which is like they're safety trainers that are out in the field that can do the work and they just go out and hang out with the crews and help line people out with work and then they jump in the situations or you know kind of help out so that that was
4: been a cool thing that Atlas has done no i appreciate that answer and perspective from both of you guys it's just you know even at college i've had some very intelligent professors who probably shouldn't have been teachers so it was more of a how do you pick up the soft skills for for training and stuff like yeah. that is it is it something that you just have always had or is it something that you had to learn or do programs like, you know, CTSP or crew leader or, you know, be involved with the ISA. I'd say it's something I had developed from my
3: mother. I watched my mother always train and give back to people and always, she's constantly training her employees and making sure to help them have a career. So I think since seeing that most of my life and having her have that, uh, not the inspiration, but the, I don't know, she's got the, She just loves to help out and give back. So I just think that transferred over to me. And coming from where I, you know, I did have a lot of mentors, but at first it was like, okay, I didn't die. So I'm going to keep doing that until something else happens, you know, and I basically my whole first part of my career was by trial by not dying, you know, so I learned from not getting hurt or maimed.
2: I also think that there's uh, a bit of an aptitude. Um, a lot of people like Matthew have a natural ability to want to learn and to want to teach. And so that's, a, that's an aptitude that if you can find an employee who has that or who are showing those characteristics, I think you're going to find um, you know, an easier time creating a leader or a, you know, a, a supervisor type personnel from that person who has a kind of a natural ability, but that's not to say that that it can't be taught. You know, the teaching is you know a technique in itself, and then the motivation behind that teaching might be a little bit more difficult to, to define, but you can still find that if there's an individual who's very withdrawn and, and kind of shy, but feels they have something to offer. With the right mentor, the right teacher, you can you can develop that person in over time into uh, an outgoing, dynamic leader who can get their thought across. So it's all a matter of basically, like Matthew was saying, finding a mentor that you that you look up to, your mom or your father or whoever is is you know you're, you're emulating, and try to just you know stay with them over time until you feel confident and until until you start seeing the returns, you'll see. You'll see if you're a trainer and you start seeing all kinds of ha- haphazard activity on the field, then you know, you didn't get your message across. But if you're yeah. a trainer and you start to see the excellence that you're expecting or, you know, above, then, you know, you're doing a fantastic job.
3: Yeah, exactly. Hey, you're way better with words than I am. I'm.
2: <laughs> we're catching you off guard. We didn't even send you these questions. And we're like, we're asking this,
3: I'm,
4: I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I like it, you know, um, well, cool. so John, do you have anything else that you want
0: to ask or add in? Yeah, I guess I would just say I mean, it seems like Matthew, especially and just from hearing your background, it seems like you lean pretty heavily on having a mentor or having those people that kind of put faith in you to grow in the industry. So, what would you say, you know, if, if someone, what would be one of the first things you would say to somebody looking for that kind of mentorship um, from you? Like, what would you, what would be the advice you would give them to? excel in this industry
3: yeah so uh, in my opinion networking is key it's not what you know at some points it's who you know so if you can you know if you have a good attitude and a willingness to learn and people can see that i feel like that puts you far better above most people and as long as you have you show a strong work ethic you know you're yeah you might have the um the drive but if you can't show up to a job site on time or you can't, you know, you can't show that Then no one's going to want to put time into you. But I'd say reaching out to people is the big thing, you know, and um, to staying persistent and just working really, you know, hard and you'll come across great mentors and you'll come across bad mentors of stuff you don't want to do. So it's all up to you to navigate where you want to go and who you want to reach out to. You know, I'm always talking to people. I always, I always have a plan A, plan B, plan C, you know, so just reaching out to people is the big thing.
0: Super cool. And yeah, I think Instagram has opened that up to a lot of, Oh yeah. You guys are fighting against, I mean, the news reports on all the bad stuff that happens in the industry, but you guys get to show in overwhelming amounts, all the cool stuff that you can do and how safe. Yeah. You can be. And so it's really unique. It's cool that you're, you're on there. And I mean, that's how we found you to talk, to have this conversation today. So it's such a, a neat kind of, instagram is making those connections for a lot of people
3: yeah that's not nah, it's cool man and uh yeah there's one advice i could say is keep your instagram clean and show and be professional you know if you want to use
4: it that
0: way it's, yeah it's great advice
4: we brought up instagram a couple times and i'll put your instagram in like the notes and stuff for the episode but not everybody reads so what is yeah. your instagram uh it is um at
3: f capital f and then m-e-c-k-y
4: just figured we should probably give you that shout out because we keep bringing up (laughs) how important instagram is and then saying good luck
3: Uh, and it's cool that you guys are doing this because some of my idols and mentors from illinois were todd kramer and norm hall so it's cool that i can kind of help give back like those guys have so it's cool
1: Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Samson Rope. Your climbing ropes aren't just tools of the trade. Your life literally depends on them. Specifically designed to endure any environment you throw at them, Samson Climbing Lines not only meet the rigors of your job, but are engineered to keep you safe. The result of a legacy of over 140 years of innovation. Hyperclimb is a new 100% polyester 11.7 millimeter double braid climbing line Engineered for both moving and stationary rope systems that run well with your hardware and pre-six. Hyperclimb's low elongation is key for long ascents and dual purpose climbing. Hyperclimb from Samson, the strongest name in rope. Visit samsonrope.com for more information.